Hi, this is Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels. And this is Tuesday, May 17th, and it is 6.06 p.m. Eastern Time. And this broadcast is coming to you from Panama, home of, of course, the tropical rainforest. And so we're having some technical difficulties due to our tropical conditions, but the show will go on. So today's topic is... Congestive heart failure deaths are on the rise despite a 10-year reduction in mortality. So why the sudden rise in deaths from congestive heart failure? First of all, it helps to know what congestive heart failure is. So let's consult none other than the American Heart Association. Yes. American Heart Association. Let's see what they say. Heart failure occurs when the heart muscle is weakened and cannot pump enough blood to meet the body's needs for blood and oxygen. This is pretty vague. We say the body, let's get real specific here, we're talking about the brain and the kidneys. And we're talking about the um, tissues, such as, let's just say, for example, uh, since blood can't get pumped through the heart, it backs up and we get swelling all over the body. So specifically, uh, that's heart failure. I've added that just to help make this a little more concrete for you. Now, of course, we have warnings and symptoms. And the warning signs and symptoms are you have to pay close attention to changes in symptoms to reduce your chances of hospital visits by understanding your symptoms and knowing what they sig- when they signal trouble. Learn what warning signs to watch for. And this is a common thing in medicine. Um, we have people sit and watch and wait and wait and wait until things get bad enough or the condition is serious enough where their chances of death justify the use of deadly medications. And so then, this is explaining to the heart failure person or victim or whatever that their job is to watch and wait. Treatment options for heart failure. This is important. It cannot be cured. This is the American Heart Association. But there's good news. It can be treated. Exactly. For the rest of your life, of course. And symptoms can improve. Not always, but they can improve. And this information, they have to say, is provided at the sole discretion of the American Heart Association and is not a part of any particular initiative. So, those of you who have friends and relatives, maybe even surfing the net about congestive heart failure, know that it can and often is cured naturally. But it is never cured with drugs. Tools and resources. And they've got downloadable trackers and... Hi, this is Dr. Daniels. And welcome back to Healing with Dr. Daniels. Um, we're having some reception problems here. However, there will be a recording available. So what we're talking about is congestive heart failure, the apparent spike in the death rates. We're trying to figure out what this might be due to. And so we're looking at the American Heart Association's definition of heart failure, and we see that it does not allow for a cure. instructs the uh, patient to simply watch and wait. And causes and risk 
for heart failure. Of course, they don't know. They say it's um, prevalent in seniors, but they advise the patient to learn more. Diagnosis of heart failure, shortness of breath, especially when lying down, swelling of the feet and ankles, sudden weight gain. It's important to work with your healthcare provider for an accurate diagnosis. And living with heart failure and managing advanced heart failure, although it can be difficult to live with a chronic condition, whenever you hear the word chronic condition, read incurable, read medical therapy ineffective. So in other words, so when a condition is chronic, that means that the medical intervention has been unsuccessful. So a chronic condition like heart failure, you can learn to manage the symptoms and live a full and enjoyable life. And of course, for advanced heart failure patients and their doctors, making good decisions requires teamwork. So we're pretty much nowhere. But guess what? We've got a program. They've got a program. It's called Rise Above Heart Failure. And they want you to do selfies showing your red socks, indicating that you're stepping up to the situation. And they like to get several million selfies. And I don't care whose criteria you use to diagnose or even treat heart failure. I don't know of anyone diagnosing it as a deficiency of red socks. Okay, so we've got the information from the American Heart Association themselves. Let's go back to the CDC and their situation. So CDC says heart failure-related death rate climbs after decade-long decrease. So first we're going to take a look at the problem. Then we're going to take a look at the treatment for congestive heart failure to see if there might be some clues. Okay, this comes from Atlanta, Georgia, of course. So although heart failure-related deaths in the United States had a steady decline for more than 10 years, the rate is increasing again, according to a new report from the United States Centers for Disease Control. The report examined heart failure trends between 2000 and 2014 and showed that age-adjusted rate, that means they cooked the numbers, but we're going to take their numbers anyway, for heart failure-related death was 105 per 100,000 population in 2000 and only 81 in 2012. However, the rate then started a slow but steady climb reaching 84. So it went up from 81 to 84 in 2014. Not so surprising, men of all ages still had a higher death rate versus women. And black individuals had a higher rate than whites, 91.5 versus 87.3 deaths per 100,000. And Hispanics had 53.3 deaths per 100,000. Get this, Hispanics. So their death rate from just of heart failure is far, far less than that for whites or blacks. And I want to tell you, Hispanics, uh, special population here, they are poorer, they are less educated, they have a higher rate of obesity and a lower rate of seeing the doctor. All right. Just want to make a note of that. Now, The report has some good news. The percentage of individuals of in-hospital heart failure-related deaths declined from 42% to 30%. And the percentage of heart failure deaths for adults over the age of 45 decreased during the same time period. Now, we have to qualify this. 
Reducing in-hospital deaths just uh, means changing the sign on the door from hospital or heart ward to hospice. And many hospitals have designated wings of the hospital as hospice units. And when people die in these hospice units, they are not counted as in-hospital deaths, even though they died within the four walls of the hospital. And even though they died as a result of basically failed therapy. So the fact that an individual dies, death is classified outside the hospital, it simply means that a different person got paid. In other words, the money went into the hospice pocket instead of the hospital pocket. So the underlying cause of heart failure-related deaths was less likely to be congestive heart disease and more likely to be other cardiovascular diseases and non-cardiovascular diseases, such as cancer, diabetes, chronic lower respiratory diseases, and kidney disease. I want to remember this. Cancer, diabetes, chronic lower respiratory diseases, and kidney diseases. Okay. In 2014, compared with 2000. Note the investigators, led by Dr. Blah Blah Blah, of the National Center for Health Statistics. The shift in distribution of deaths toward less ischemic heart disease is important for heart failure management approaches, they add. The results were released last week in a data brief. So, of course, more stats. More stats, who knows, might shed more understanding on the topic. So for this report, the researchers examined data from the multiple cause of death files. This is important because people with congestive heart failure often have more than one thing going on. For example, in my medical practice, people with heart, it was common for people who had congestive heart failure to also have diabetes, hypertension, gout. Just one example. Um, so it's common for people with heart failure to have multiple conditions going on. Okay, so matching the overall findings. Okay. By far, the age group with the highest death rate in 2014 was those older than 84 years. This was followed by those between the ages of 75 and 84 years. Now, it's important to understand what's going on here. The life expectancy for uh, a U.S. citizen is more or less 76 years of age. So we now have a disease that is cutting people out or killing them once they reach this average life expectancy of 76 years, more or less. From 20 to 2012, blacks had a 20% decrease in heart failure death rates, and whites had a 22% decrease. I'm not sure that these are statistically significant differences. The rate increased by 4% for each group between 2012 and 2014. Now, what this tells me is that from 2012 to 2014, blacks and whites both started doing something that was more lethal. On the other hand, the rate decreased steadily for Hispanic individuals, the 27% decline between 20, 2000 and 2014. So, Hispanics continued to decline, whereas whites and blacks 
had this J-curve effect. They were experiencing declines and boom, things bounced up. Along with already mentioned decrease in heart failure deaths occurring in hospitals, the percentage of deaths in a nursing home or long-term care facility also decreased. However, the percentage of deaths occurring in residents at home increased, and those occurring in outpatient clinics or hospices increased to 15.7%. So those occurring in outpatient clinics or hospice care increased from 9% to 15.7%. Those occurring at home increased from 18% to 27.6%. So it's what I mentioned before, is you're shifting the location of the death, which would be hospice. Again, many hospices are actually located in hospitals. Finally, congestive heart disease, the underlying cause of death, for 23.9% of heart failure-related deaths of adults age 45 and over. So in other words, 23.9% of all uh, people with heart disease died of it. And the other um, 77% died of something else. Other cardiovascular diseases accounted for 41% and non-heart disease accounted for 34%. So let's take a look and let's flesh this out and see if we can't make this a little more real. Now the key here to understanding what the heck is going on is what they say they really died of. And, you know, this is their numbers, and so we are going to take... Uh, their, their figures. So cancer, diabetes, chronic lower respiratory disease, and kidney disease. Let's take a look at this kidney disease. So kidney disease was responsible for the increase in death. Now the next thing we want to do is take a look at the treatment for heart failure. And I think if we take a look at the treatment for heart failure, we're going to see a lot of fascinating things. All right, so let's take a look at the medications that are used to treat heart failure. Now, again, we get our list from none other than the American Heart Association. And so this is, you know, standard of care. That's what we're looking at. Okay, now remember, one cause of death is kidney failure. Let's just that up in our mind here. So research studies of heart failure have shown several classes of drugs have shown to be the best for the treatment of heart failure. Heart failure patients may need multiple medications. Each one treats a different symptom or contributing factor. Each medication comes with its own instructions and rules. They can't do their job if you don't take them correctly. You and your caregivers should work with your healthcare team to understand the medications and how they should be taken. When, how often, and in what amounts. It's important to discuss all of the drugs you take with your doctor and understand the desired effects and possible side effects. It's critically important that patients with heart failure take their medications as directed by their healthcare provider. The following list gives you a quick look at many typical medications to treat heart failure at different stages. Now, those of you who are listening, I think you need to Expand your vision and think about other aspects of your life. Let's take a look at your car, for example. How do you turn your car on? 
How many different ways are there to turn your car on? For most people, there's one way to turn on their car. Well, maybe two. Your remote control button might turn your car on. And you maybe you have a key. You turn a key and it turns your car on. There's two ways to turn your car on. Why do you only have two ways to turn on your car? Because the methods you are using to turn on your car are extremely reliable. And you don't have to resort to a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth way to turn your car on. And so whenever you have a condition, the number of drugs used to treat our condition is inversely proportional to the effectiveness of the drugs. In other words, if you have a drug, a condition, let's say hypertension, for example, and you have 15 drugs or 20 drugs to treat hypertension, that suggests the drugs to treat this condition are relatively ineffective. Okay. So this is what uh, we're going to take a look at. So let's, we have these drugs for the treatment of congestive heart failure. I'm just going to count the drugs. These are just the drugs that appear on the American Heart Association site. So this list is an indisputable list, one that any qualified, board-certified cardiologist would easily agree with. So these are, this is standard of care study stuff. So again, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 40. Okay, so we have 40 drugs, 40 different drugs that are used to treat congestive heart failure as a part of the standard of care. Can you imagine, just imagine getting in your car and you have 40 keys on a ring, any one of which or combination of several could get your car to start, but then again, it could not. In any case, it will never get you to your destination. And on the way to the destination, you have to shuffle the keys frequently. How happy would you be with your car's function? You probably wouldn't even want to make your next car payment. And this is also why they have to make health insurance compulsory. So what we have then is we have a condition for which any one or combination of 40 drugs can be used to treat this combination. Okay, so let's take a look at the different classes of drugs and see if we can't figure out how and why the death rate from congestive heart failure is increasing. All right, first is angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors. These are ACE inhibitors. And these are captopril, enalapril, falsinopril, lisinopril, peridopril. Quinapril, Ramipril, Trandolapril. All right, so a lot of prills there. And these drugs treat congestive heart failure by inhibiting the blood flow through the kidney. And so we ask ourselves, why are kidney, why are heart failure patients dying of kidney problems? And when you take one of these drugs, all I need to do is take an over-the-counter Motrin with it, and boom, it shuts the kidneys down. Probably not a very uh, widely discussed situation. So we have here commonly prescribed drugs, this whole class that interferes with blood flow in the kidney. 
Next, we have angiotensin II receptor blockers or inhibitors. And angiotensin II um, is a, is a uh, hormone in the body that controls salt metabolism and blood pressure. Whenever the body is in distress, especially when it's in distress, there's not enough blood flow to certain organs, namely the brain and the kidney, angiotensin II is, re- is released, and angiotensin then has to go and cause vasoconstriction in certain areas to get blood flow where, the blood, where it wants the blood to go. So this is a drug that blocks this receptor. And so this drug blocks the body's emergency response to inadequate or inappropriate blood flow. All right. The picture's emerging here. Okay, so uh, another class of drugs that's commonly used is called beta blockers. In order to understand a beta blocker, you have to understand what the heart does. The heart contracts with force, like, and squeezes. And when it squeezes, it pushes blood forward to the body. So obviously, the harder the heart contracts, the more blood goes forward, and the more frequently it contracts, the more blood goes forward. Now, the heart is supposed to contract anywhere between 60 and 100 times a minute. And so you have someone with heart failure, their amount of blood they put forward into the body is not enough. And so what's the immune system going to say? It's going to say to the heart, man, could you, could you pump a little faster? In an attempt to provide more blood to the body. And so what does the modern medical industrial complex do? They give a drug called beta blockers that shuts off this emergency response, that lowers the heart rate at a time when the body is in an emergency situation and requires blood to get to the kidneys. And so the beta blocker slows not only the rate at which the heart beats, but the force with which the heart beats. So now, let's say you got a, uh, a sinking ship and you're using a bucket to bail out the water. Well, now you've just decreased the size of your bucket and the guy dumping the water overboard is working slower. So this is going to throw you into a situation of worsening congestive heart failure. And then we've had aldosterone antagonists. Again, aldosterone, another um, hormone. This is produced by the, uh, the um, adrenal glands. And this is a, a hormone that increases intravascular volume, so increases the amount of volume in the blood vessels. Now, this is important. Why? Imagine you're a fireman and you've got a hose and you're trying to put out a fire, trying to, you know, get water circulated to this fire to put it out. What do you need? You need some water pressure in the hose. Can't work with slack hose. And this is what this drug does. It gives this person a slack cardiovascular system and dumps water, dumps salt, and literally collapses the circulation. And again, decreases circulation to other parts of the body. Now, this is going to give the person beautiful numbers. The blood pressure is going to appear lower. Um, everything's going to, everything the doctors measure is going to look pretty darn good. 
but the patient, of course, is going to deteriorate. Next, commonly prescribed, they say, are hydralazine and isosorbide dinitrate. And this is a, a combination drug. And Isodel, the one that we used to use back in the old days, uh, is a nitrate. And what it did is you put it under your tongue or you swallow it. And it causes the blood vessels to dilate. Again, you take a hose and you decrease the pressure and you make it a slack hose. And so now, even when the heart pumps, it's a situation where the blood can't go anywhere because the, the hose is, is too fat and it can't generate pressure and direct the flow. As if that's not enough, then we have a whole cadre of diuretics. Furosemide, bumetadine, torsemide, chlorothiazide, amelioride, hydrochlorothiazide, endapamide, metolazone, triamterine. All of these cause the body to pee and they also cause diabetic, I'm sorry, diabetes, and they also cause arthritis. And so what are congestive heart failure patients dying of? dying of diabetes, increased death rate from diabetes. And so we see here that we're using drugs to treat congestive heart failure that actually cause diabetes. They even give us a reason, in case the patient's reluctant to take these drugs, what is this type of medication doing? And this is what the American Heart Association says. This causes the body to rid itself of excess fluids and sodium through urination helps to relieve the heart's workload. Hi, this is Dr. Daniels, and welcome back to Healing with Dr. Daniels. You're listening, by the way, to Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul, and this is Healing with Dr. Daniels. And we will have a recording of the show available. So what we're talking about, we're taking a look at the drugs that are being used to treat congestive heart failure and seeing if we can draw some kind of uh, association between these drugs and the increase in death rate among people who have congestive heart failure. And so we have these um, diuretics, which are known to cause arthritis. Arthritis is a condition for which people commonly take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like um, aspirin, Motrin, ibuprofen, and the combination of these arthritis pills and ACE inhibitors, another uh, class of drug used for heart failure treatment, brings on kidney failure, an increasing cause of death in this particular in this group. Also, these diabetics cause diabetes, and if you look at uh, if you recall from a previous radio show, the standard of care for diabetes is to lower the hemoglobin A1C to 7.5, and some people are even lowering it to 7 or 6.5. And the medical industrial complex itself has done research showing that when the hemoglobin A1C is lowered below 8 with drugs, then that's rate 
increases by 30%. And so simply creating more diabetics by using water pills and then having those diabetics treated with the standard of care creates actually a multiplier uh, killing effect. So you take someone who, who would have lived, you convert them to a deadly disease, diabetes, and then you treat them according to the standard of care, this person is under therapy at the moment, so the diabetes will, will be diagnosed and will be treated according to the standard of care. And so now you've taken this person's mortality um, and put them in an ultra-high death category and increased it. And then, if that's not enough, other possible medications that might be prescribed, anticoagulants or blood thinners. Now, the important thing to understand about blood thinners is blood, it's all about your blood. If your blood stays ordinarily inside of blood vessels, and what keeps this blood inside of blood vessels is whenever there's a breach, platelets uh, clump and seal off that breach. And the blood is so thick that it doesn't breach little microscopic um, holes that may exist in the blood vessels. This is a normal state of affairs. All blood vessels are what we call semi-permeable. That means material can pass in and out of the blood vessel. What makes things stay in the blood vessel is, one, they're thicker, like blood being thick, or two, uh, the clotting mechanism is intact and seals off any exit, and three, the amount of pressure in the blood vessel is within a certain range. And so this is what keeps blood flowing in its blood vessel. So when you add anticoagulants to the mix, you thin the blood, and so now blood can actually leak out through these um, gaps, naturally occurring gaps, the not abnormal, naturally occurring gaps, between blood cells. And so then the integrity of the blood vessel is violated because a red blood cell that could not ordinarily have seeped out can because the clotting mechanism is not in place, so the clotting won't happen to keep the blood in the blood vessel. And then what happens is the blood is so thin that it oozes out through these spaces. And what this causes is a anemia. That means not enough red blood cells in circulation. So now you have a heart who that's weakened, can't pump very well. But what it does pump has a lesser content of red blood cells, carries less oxygen to cells. And so now you've got this heart, it's pumping less frequently, so less blood is getting to the body. It's pumping with less force, so each heartbeat carries less volume of liquid. And then you've now thinned the blood, so each volume of liquid has fewer blood cells in it. That that's not enough. So now we have cholesterol-lowering drugs. These are called statins. And what do they do? Well, the most important thing cholesterol-lowering drugs do is they deplete coenzyme Q10. And this is a nutrient your body manufactures to protect your heart. And so adding cholesterol drugs to the mix deprives the heart of primary protection from the immune system. So here we have it. We have a heart that is totally compromised. Now, we've only explained, really, the kidney disease and the diabetic increases in death.
with congestive heart failure. Let's take a look at the cancer situation. Why would cancer patients, or why would people who have congestive heart failure and cancer be experiencing increased death? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward. Many chemotherapeutic agents, um, adriamycin in particular, cause and worsen congestive heart failure and carry with them a separate independent death due to heart failure and heart disease. In fact, adriamycin is so dangerous and so deadly that in medical school, the nickname for this drug was Red Death. Yeah, Red Death. And this cancer therapy is still being used today. It's being used especially in breast cancer cases. And um, the leading cause of death among breast cancer victims, if you'd like to use that word, is not breast cancer, it's heart disease. And we have here an obvious culprit when we take a look at the chemotherapy drug used, namely adriamycin. So, now if we go back and take a look, so cancer, got it. Diabetes, got it. Kidney disease, got it. All these are basically, these are iatrogenic deaths. These are deaths caused by the therapy the person is receiving. And in case you have any doubt about that, we can take a look and see who's dying. We see that Hispanics die at the rate of 53 per 100,000, whereas whites and blacks die at the rate of 91 or 87 per 100,000. What's the difference between whites and Hispanics? First of all, let's look at the difference between whites and blacks. Now you might say, well, the difference is their skin color. All right, I'll give you that. But what we see here is the increase in death rates with blacks and whites is identical, identical, which means that this death from congestive heart failure is due to a cultural practice, not a racial um, genetic predisposition. So the fact that the increase in death with blacks and whites is identical, tells us that whatever's causing the increase is a cultural practice, it's a behavioral cause. Now, the other thing it tells us it must be behavioral is we have Hispanics, we have blacks, we have whites, we have Hispanics. With Hispanics, the difference is drastically different. 53 deaths as opposed to 91 deaths. What is the difference between Hispanics and whites and blacks? A huge difference is Hispanics have less health insurance and they have fewer doctor visits and they have less access to care. That is the huge difference between them. Hispanics, there is no health practice they are engaged in that the medical industrial complex feels is healthy for heart disease. In other words, they have a higher degree of obesity. They have a higher incidence of being uneducated, higher incidence of having no health insurance. So all the risk factors for being uh, sick, being ill, having a short lifespan, Hispanics have a higher risk in all of those categories. And so the fact that the death rate among Hispanics is almost half that of, say, whites or blacks indicates that this difference is Again, due to behavior, some behavior. And 
there's another behavior that's taking place um, in 2014. So what we have here is from 2000 to 2014, we have this curious pattern where death was declining and then all of a sudden took an uptick. So what happened from 2012 to 2014? Well, from 2012 to 2014, doctors were compelled to use electronic health records. What's that got to do with anything? This is a, a point at which doctors' supervision was tightening up tremendously. And so doctors were... Um, under greater pressure to follow the standard of care without exception, without deviation. So doctors were um, pressured through various uh, quality control measures to use drugs that maybe they would have stopped using just because the side effects were, were too awful or inconvenient. I know when I was in medical practice, I would stop using any drug that caused a patient to call me after hours. <laughs> so, what we have going on then in the last several years is doctors have been compelled to stick to the standard of care without exception. And at the same time, more and more patients have had health insurance, which means access to doctors. So you have doctors becoming increasingly more deadly, and you have citizens having more access to doctors. And these combinations together are what has led to the increase in death due to congestive heart failure. Now we have lots of questions in the chat room, so we can handle those. Let me go check and see if I can... Oops. My switchboard is blank. Absolutely blank. So uh, we'll answer questions from the chat room since we can't see the switchboard. All right, here we go. <laughs> okay, so someone says, Dr. Dance, are hot peppers and limes good for the heart? I definitely go for hot peppers. Um, the big plus with the limes really is the vitamin C. So what I would do is just, um, there are a lot of ways to get vitamin C. But definitely, I'm a fan of hot peppers, so definitely pepper your food. Dr. Dan, has a tetanus shot ever helped or saved anyone from anything? I've always heard it's a required shot for travel or rusty nail, but I'm still skeptical if it's ever been proven to help anyone in reality. All right, I'm going to tell you what they told us doctors way back when. This is in the year of our Lord, 1986. Um, so uh, if you've been around you've heard that you need a booster tetanus shot every 10 years um, and of course your children are getting tetanus shots at 2, 4, 6 months 1 year and 5 years of age All right. so it's a curious thing that they declared this was back in 1985 and I was out in the wilderness and I was really working very hard to keep up and I subscribed to all these um, audio cassettes that dates me. Uh, they would send me in the mail. I would listen to them. 
And they said no one who has ever received even one tetanisha has ever had tetanus. That means then that there's no need for anything ever more than one tetanus shot. And so if people who get one tetanus shot have never ever had tetanus, what about people who've gotten zero tetanus shots? I can tell you, I went to a tertiary care hospital. That's where I trained. That means this was a hospital where we saw the most rare cases. We saw the cases that nobody ever, uh, that no one could diagnose because they're so unusual. In four years of being at that medical school, I never saw one case of tetanus. And so this is, this hospital then is a referral area, a referral hospital for an area of several million people. When you think of Philadelphia, I think even back then, Philadelphia had at least four million people, uh, just in the proper Philadelphia population. And we pulled our patients from really all over Pennsylvania and even beyond. And so in four years, not one case of tetanus. Then I did residency at a community hospital um, of the rich and not so famous. Not a single case of tetanus there. Then I practiced for 10 years in an inner city ghetto. Not one case of tetanus ever. And the vaccination rate wasn't the highest. So, um, the tennis shot, by the way, is not required for travel and is not required for rusty nail. It's simply recommended. Um, tetanus is caused by a uh, bacteria, Clostridium tetani. And Clostridium, as in C. difficile, Clostridium difficile. So, C. difficile is a normal Clostridium organism in everybody's body. So, that's one Clostridium. Clostridium tetani is a variant. Variant. So in order to get tetanus, this clostridium um, bacteria has to reproduce and has to create a toxin that's dispersed throughout the person's body. So it's almost unheard of if you're going to get tetanus, which is called lockjaw, to not at least have an abscess or collection of bacteria, tetanus bacteria, somewhere in your body producing this toxin. But I have not... Um, since 1979, which is when I started medical school, ever seen a case of tetanus. And so I would say that like many of the other so-called vaccine-preventable conditions, um, this is one where you can definitely slide. Personally, I have not had a tetanus booster in at least um, at least 30 years. At least 30 years. And I am not worried about it. And I live in the jungle with the... Um, Spiders and bugs and, um, you know, all kinds of animals and, and opportunities um, to get soil contamination. So I'm personally not worried about it. Has not been a problem. Have not even seen it happen. <laughs> okay, so that's the tetanus shot story. Okay, coworker in the late in who's forty something died suddenly a couple of years ago and had a terrible cough, which was blamed on cigarettes. Could it have been heart failure? And so the answer is yes, it could have been heart failure. Um, however, a cough um, 
uh, chronic cough can be anything. It could be um, undiagnosed lung cancer. It can be congestive heart failure. Um, the tip off with heart failure is a person would have a very, very fat angle. Whereas with the uh, lung cancer, they would not. And cigarettes are blamed uh, for heart failure as well. Okay. <laughs> yes, the reception problem is probably in my end of the jungle, not in anybody's computer. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, the truth about vitamins, what those other ingredients really do for you? Yes. Um, when you, those other ingredients in your vitamins are absolutely deadly. I actually did a radio show on uh, supplements and their additives. Um, I recommend that anyone look at the label for the one-a-day uh, multiple vitamins, especially if that's not enough for you. Try Centrum Silver. And that's some pretty, uh, pretty amazing stuff. <laughs> All right. Okay, so the bottom line then is the modern therapy for heart failure actually worsens the condition and contributes to mortality. So what's a person to do? And also, the standard care is very, they're very clear about this. There are no cures. Don't expect it. Um, but anyone who's doing natural therapy for any length of time has cured several cases of congestive heart failure. I'm here to tell you because I've done it. Um, the individual with congestive heart failure is suffering, basically, from food poisoning. When I say food poisoning, I don't mean infectious disease. I mean... Uh, food coloring, food additives, um, fake foods that are um, made with plastic and have no nutritional value. And so this undigestible food is basically ends up in the arteries, clogging them up, clogging up the circulation, and the heart is, and also um, infiltrating the heart even. And so the heart muscle is no longer being um, composed of human um, a biological material. Instead, the body is trying to use the plastic in the diet to create a heart, and it doesn't work. The heart becomes stiff, and the heart just doesn't beat properly and doesn't function. So this is the problem. The um, simple solution to congestive heart failure, um, it's been my experience, you can read Dean Ornish as well, is simply a vegan, whole food, unprocessed diet. Dean Ornish will tell you you need to fall in love with someone and all other kinds of fancy things. I have not, been, I have not found that that's necessary. Um, you can take someone off the heart transplant list, literally in less than a week, with their diet. And not a whole lot of supplements. Uh, I know a lot of uh, herbalists or naturalists say, oh, you know, give them Hawthorne, give them this, give them that. And it's just not necessary. If you take a person... Uh, and get them on a natural diet in one week, you know, you've saved a life. I'll just tell you a, a quick story, which I've told before, is um, I had um, a childhood friend who knocked on my door one night and says, oh, my God, 
my father's in the hospital. You've got to save him. They're trying to kill him. I said, look, it's 8 o'clock. Can I see him first thing in the morning? I'll go see him before I even go to the office. And she said, okay. I told her, and by the way, you have to pay me. Even though we're buddies, you've got to pay me. She says, okay, I'll do that. So I get up the next morning, extra early, show up at the hospital 7 o'clock, check out the scene. Sure enough, guy's hooked up to oxygen. His body's got at least 50 pounds of extra water on it. He doesn't know his name, doesn't even know where he is, and he's laying in bed. And they pretty much decide that he's going to die. They said he's too sick for a transplant, so he's going to let him die. So I whipped out my prescription pad. Uh, my friend was there, my childhood friend. I said, look, no hospital water, no hospital food. Uh, start him on, uh, I think, some B vitamin. And just handed her the script. There you go. Now, all she was allowed to feed this guy was oatmeal for breakfast, lunch was salad with vegetables and rice, dinner was vegetables and rice, and for vegetables he could have squash, green leafy vegetables, root vegetables, his choice, all the spices he wanted, and salt according to taste. That was it, nothing else. And it took four days. He no longer needed his oxygen. He lost 50 pounds of water. The doctor stopped all of his medications because he did not need them. And he was up shaving and demanding his car keys. And that is an awesome transformation. And that's just with natural healing. I mean, and I do mean natural. This guy basically did it with food. And people can too. Um, as you know, I do help people uh, with coaching and guidance. And you can go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash just go to vitalitycapsules.com and click on Discovery Session, and you can um, check things out there. Um, I can't see everybody, but I can help some people, so go there, check it out, and uh, we can chat about it and see if we might be able to work together. But congestive heart failure, definitely curable. Um, the drugs that doctors use for congestive heart failure, definitely dangerous. And you've got to make up your mind, your decision, how you want to live, and, of course, how long you want to live. All right, that is it for today. Sorry for the bad reception and poor technology. So we'll see you next week. And as always, Think Happens. <laughs>